Hi, everyone. Hi. We are in the middle, right today, I think, right smack in the middle of asking 10 hard questions, 10 topics, exploring these topics that could pose significant barriers to people exploring the Christian faith. We all, I hope, have people that we know and love who do not yet follow Jesus. Maybe they're family members or coworkers or our neighbors. And uh, they don't yet follow Christ. And, and some of them aren't even giving it a second thought. But some of them are really paying close attention. And they feel a little bit suspicious, maybe even wary of some of the things that we Christians claim to believe. So one of our goals in this series is that we might better understand the barriers that maybe we're experiencing ourselves in our belief system, and especially the barriers that others have that might prevent them from coming to believe in the gospel. So far, we have explored, isn't the world better off without Christianity? Doesn't Christianity crush diversity? That's a big question in our culture today. How can you take the Bible seriously doesn't the Bible condone slavery and denigrate women? Whew. Those are some questions, aren't they? I've been known to say that these are questions that no one would want to address nor even listen to before the first couple of cups of joe in the morning, right? Well, today, our question is, how can you say that there's only one true faith? Coffee available in the lobby. <laughs> I may need a second cup. Most of us like options. Would we not say that most of us in life like to have our options? To, we probably agree that in most everything in life, there are more than one way to look at things. And if somebody is to tell us, no, 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 there's only one way to, to look at this, it's going to ruffle our feathers. For example, maybe your housemate or your spouse disagrees with you on how the laundry should be done or the clothes should be folded or how the bills should be paid. And if any one of you claims to that your way is the only way, yeah, that's probably not going to go over real well, is it? Maybe anybody with a little bit of experience? Yeah, thank you, Zach. I appreciate that. I'm not the only household. <laughs> what about in community life, in the church? What if one Sunday you came and John or somebody else in leadership stood up here in the pulpit and made the statement that there is only one political party for which all Christians should register? <whistles> yeah, my, yeah, ooh, I heard that. My guess is that at least for some of us in the room, some hackles would go up. Now, the word, the, uh, the word originally, hackle, uh, is, talks about the feathers that, around, that are around a bird's neck that raise up when it's alarmed or when they sense that there is danger. And I hope we would be alarmed. We'd sense some danger if somebody in the pulpit said there's only one political party which every Christian should register for. My point is, in most incidences in life, when someone says... There is only one way in regards to just about anything. Most of us are going to judge that as arrogant and exclusive. 
And because we affirm in almost every other area of life that there's more than one way to think, to say there's only one true faith, only one way to God, can feel, even to Christians, disconcerting and out of step. Hang in there with me. Don't let me make you nervous. Hang in there. The question, how can you say there is only one true faith, is such an important question to wrestle with because it is a barrier for many people in leaning in to Jesus Christ. It's also, I'm going to say this morning, an important question for us as Christians to wrestle with for our own sake because it can prevent us from being confident in sharing our faith. If we too believe, as much of the world does, the non-believing world, that 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 whole claim lands arrogant and archaic. And if we think, on one hand, we believe that the gospel is good and, and beautiful and true, but on the other hand, we begin to doubt and, and hesitate. We're going to hesitate. Is that claim that we make as Christians, is that exclusionary? Is it arrogant? Well, I'm going to help us, I hope, look at that through another lens. And that is the lens that actually the Bible teaches this as a core truth, but it teaches it not arrogantly or exclusively, but it teaches it as an inclusive and loving truth. So maybe you're here this morning or you're online with us, and I just extend a welcome to all of you who are listening uh, somewhere else this morning. Maybe you're unsure about what the Bible teaches. Maybe you're questioning, can people come to God in a variety of ways? Can someone find God through Muhammad or Buddha, through the teachings of Gandhi or other really wise teachers in our history? Are there, as the popular uh, illustration diagrams, many ways to the top of the same mountain? Are there many ways to know God? In this illustration, the paths that you see going up the mountain represent different faiths. And at the very top, in the, the, the mountain peak, the summit, in this popular illustration, is where God is. And many people ask, why fuss about all the different ways that people can seek God if they truly all lead to the same destination? If Islam and Hinduism and Christianity and in many, many other paths... If, if people just follow those paths with sincere hearts and they all lead to God, why make a big deal out of our differences? And if this illustration is true, that's a valid question to ask. So this morning, we're going to explore our question, how can you say that there's only one truth by doing two things? First, we're going to look at what scripture teaches. Are there different ways to know God according to to the rule of faith of Christianity, the Bible. So we're going to look at that. And then we are going to explore a little bit more where this popular view that all religious paths lead to the same destination, we're going to explore it and see how that, how that looks in reality. 
So first, let's talk about verses from the New Testament, from both Jesus and credible witnesses to the claims that Jesus makes in Scripture. We're also going to look kind of at the big picture of God's heart on this question very quickly from Old Testament into the New Testament. One of the most quoted verses when people are maybe arguing or discussing this topic about there being one faith only, one of the most quoted verses are the words of Jesus found in John 14, verse 6. And here's what Jesus says. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, 5, there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man, Christ Jesus. Luke writes, there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which, one, by which we must be saved. And John the apostle in 1 John writes, whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have God's son does not have life. And then one more again from Jesus. He said, yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. They will come and go freely and find good pastures. A few weeks ago, Dr. Nijay Gupta addressed the question, how can you take the Bible seriously? And maybe you're unsure this morning about the reliability of scripture. Maybe you're listening this morning, you just kind of found us online and you think, well, those verses are great if you believe in the Bible. So if that's where you're at this morning, I just, would you just hit uh, rewind, go to our webpage and listen to that, that message on why Christians base our faith on scripture. You can hear all of uh, our messages in this series on our webpage, by the way. So, okay, let's dig in a little bit under the surface of this most quoted verse from Jesus on this topic. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, this is probably a verse that many of us have memorized. Who memorizes somewhere along your faith journey, you've memorized John 14, 6. Okay, awesome. Yeah, me too. And I will say I am deeply grateful for scriptures that I have memorized through the years, that they have guided my, my whole life. They've guided my thinking. They have brought comfort to me in times of wounding. They have corrected me and also given me much joy and much hope. But over time, it's easy for us to forget the context of some of those verses that we have memorized. So let's think about the context. Who's Jesus talking to when he says this? What is the heart of the message? What's his heart in this moment that he says these words? Is it a passage where he is challenging the Pharisees about who he is? Is he making a strong point? Is he uh, talking to the enemy out in the desert, reminding him, standing firm on who he is in face of the enemy? Or is he speaking to the Sadducees who do not believe in the resurrection of the dead? No, no, and no. The context for John 14, 6 is that he is alone with the disciples. They have spent Three incredible, power-filled, intimate years with this man. 
And this right now is just a few days before his crucifixion. They have hoped with all their being, their scriptures have taught them that there was a Messiah coming and they believe, they believe Jesus is the Messiah. And they are absolutely sure he is about to save them, to redeem them from the terror that is Rome. But instead, they are going to see this man crucified by Rome at the insistence of their own religious leaders. Jesus, in this passage, is offering comfort for what is about to be a devastating experience. There's no arrogance in this moment. One of the barriers for people who do not follow Christ when Christians try to make this claim is it's arrogant. So we need to hear the fact that one of our most used verses was not in a context that had one iota of arrogance to it. Not that Jesus ever did, but we can see it that way sometimes. What Jesus is doing in this moment, because confusion and chaos are about to come down on all of them, is he is grounding them in the truth. He says, you know who I am. You know how to follow me. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Or as the message says, don't let this rattle you. You know who I am. I am the way. I am the truth and the life. And these words were given in that moment to ground his followers in the truth, in the stabilizing truth of who he is. One of the resources that we've offered for this series, and I don't think we've talked about it much yet, but it it actually is one of my favorites. It's Dan Kimball's book called How Not to Read the Bible. And here's what Dan writes about this passage. He says, the heart of Jesus is one of serving others, a heart of humility and not separation or hatred. Jesus isn't out to hammer people who have other beliefs. He is offering comfort and truth. At the same time, Jesus is clear in letting his followers know that following other gods and teachings, and there were many gods in Greek and Roman culture, is not the way to find God. Jesus is making a distinction about who he is in relationship to other religious views, but it is done in love, out of care for those who follow him, that they might know and be stabilized in the truth. Now, that is consistent with the Jesus we see in the Gospels. Gentle with sinners. Gentle with anyone sincerely searching for truth. Never arrogant. Paul, in Ephesians 2, teaches that Jesus came to tear down every dividing wall. To make the Gentiles and Jews into one people. Which, by the way, that covered everybody on the face of the earth. Okay, if you you were either a Jew or a Gentile. So Jesus came to bring people together. Jesus, remember one one of the barriers is exclusivity. That's arrogant and exclusive. But in reality, our faith teaches us that Jesus brings inclusivity, not exclusivity. The overarching theme of the Bible is that God seeks after every single human being. First Peter 3, 9, God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. He wants every person to walk in 
and to know him. One of, uh, Amy, you'll be thrilled with this. One of our students after the first service came up and said to me, I was so proud of her, she said, I have a couple of questions about your message. And I said, go for it. And she said, how do you define inclusive? And so we talked about that, and I, I reiterated that to be inclusive, inclusive is to welcome everyone, that the gospel, that the Bible teaches the gospel is for every single person, uh, and it's a choice. And I told her about, reminded her about the, the rich young ruler. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus, Jesus shared truth with him, and the, the young man at that moment, we don't know what happened in his future, but in that time, he could not choose that way. And he walked away and Jesus let him go. It saddened Jesus' heart, but he didn't, he didn't try to force him. He just offered him the truth and gave it to him in that way. The overarching story of the Bible is that God seeks after everyone. And that's not new to the New Testament. God didn't change his mind somewhere between the Old Testament and the New Testament. God's chosen people who we read about in the Old Testament were set apart for a purpose. And that purpose was that they would share with all nations the truth of their God. To be inclusive of all the nations, not exclusive. In that moment of Adam and Eve, the mother and father of humanity, when they in the garden chose to go their own way and broke relationship in the garden with God. And everything that was flourishing began to wither. God began in that moment a path to restore humanity and all everything created back to a place of flourishing. It ought to give us pause of how long it took for God to turn things back around and put humanity on a path to flourishing. I don't think that we should take lightly when we choose our own way rather than the ways of God. God's plan began to unfold through Abraham's descendants and then fully in the person of Jesus. And the work that Jesus did on the cross threw open the door, tore the curtain in two, demolished the dividing wall that all could enter and know God. That's the heart of the gospel. That is the heart of all of our scripture. And that they could now do so, we can now do so without the help of a priest or an ongoing sacrifice or of an old, the old covenant of circumcision. And male converts everywhere breathe a sigh of relief. <laughs> Christ's work on the cross was one of inclusion in a world that had begun to believe and understand faith as exclusion. There's so much more to say on this. This is such a brief overview but if we can hear this morning that the fact is our, our, our scriptures indeed teach that there is one way to know God and that is beautifully provided for in the person of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis and so many, so many people after him actually said that we either believe that Jesus is who he says he is 
the Son of God, the Redeemer, the way to restoration. We either believe who he claimed to be or he was at best insane or worst, he was evil. Jesus leaves no middle ground in in making our minds up about who he is. But all are welcome into the beautiful story of Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's go back to the mountain. Let's take a look at this popular belief today. Uh, I know Oprah is one who teaches this belief that there are many ways to God, many pathways up the mountain to the same God. And could I say this? I believe that this many approaches to God is often just through the tenderness of people and, and, and sometimes the fear of people to simply keep peace. They just kind of say, oh, it doesn't matter. It all leaves the same place. Because when people of any faith decide that they have got to be the ones to defend the truth of their faith and the way they believe, people are going to get hurt. Whether it's around a dinner table, with a neighbor, or other nations. People have died over people who've determined it's their job to defend their faith. So no wonder people don't want to go there, right? No wonder people don't want to to stir up that kind of of tension and even that kind of violence. I had to laugh a bit. Dan Kimball, his book in this section, he entitles this section, Hey, My God Can Beat Up Your God. And that's so often the way that we approach our uh, differing religious beliefs. My God can beat up your God. Okay, let's talk about the mountain. And you can find this. I'm borrowing this from, uh, from Dan Kimball. So there are approximately 4,000 religions in the world today. But for our sake this morning, we're just going to look at three of the largest according to world population. Christianity at a little over 31%, Islam 24%, and Hinduism a little over 15%. If we ask three simple questions of each of these religions, it will give us insight into what each one teaches. Who is God? Who is Jesus? And how does one attain salvation, which then leads to the belief in the afterlife? I almost didn't use this because I get it. I know this is such a simplistic snapshot of each of these religions. So please understand, books and books of, of, have been written in depth of these belief systems. But this morning, just this quick, simple look at the paths up the mountain will, I think, reveal to us, wait a minute, they really don't lead to the same destination. So let's look at Hinduism. Nijay uh, shared with us a couple of weeks ago when he spoke that he grew up in the Hindu belief system. So I apologize for how snapshotty this is this morning. You can, uh, I asked Nijay to sit in on the podcast this week, but he's going to be headed out of town. So John, you're going to get stuck with John and I, but hopefully we'll (laughs) do you proud, Nijay. So who is God according to Hinduism belief? Hindus teach that there is an ultimate force some call uh, Brahman, but at the top of the mountain of Hindu belief system, there are thousands of gods and goddesses. 
A good Hindu, in my understanding, is they will seek to please these gods by various actions and good deeds. Who do they believe? What do they believe about Jesus? Jesus is absolutely seen as a wise teacher, a man who may have even accomplished or achieved self-realization, which every good Hindu wants to achieve. He may even be one of the gods at the top of the mountain, but not the only way to the ultimate force by any definition, okay? Salvation in the afterlife. Salvation is obtained through good acts. And when we die, we are reincarnated over and over again until we have paid off our cosmic debt. Maybe you've wished that on a person or two before. I don't know. (laughs) Once that happens, once a person has paid off their cosmic debt or karmic debt, then they become one with the impersonal force in the universe and identity is completely lost, absorbed into that force. So that's just a little snapshot of Hindu belief. Okay, Islam on these three questions. Who is God? Islam does teach that there is one God whose name is Allah. While the belief in one God is more similar to Christianity, Allah is distinctly different from the God of Jewish and Christian belief. Allah is distant and remote. There's no emphasis on knowing Allah, but but just pleasing and striving to please him. In his absolute oneness at the top of the mountain, there's no trinity. So there is no relationship and therefore no emphasis on love. So no emphasis on knowing God, no emphasis on love. Let me, I want to be careful with that. Of course, there are lots of Muslim people who are loving people. That's just not an emphasis between divinity and uh, humanity. Who is Jesus? According to the Muslim faith, Jesus is a prophet. He is not the son of God, nor uh, divine in any sense. In fact, to claim that Jesus is divine is a great sin against the Muslim faith. And in the afterlife, salvation is based on weighing out the good and the bad. Which one? Did you do more good deeds? Did you do more bad? And whichever one wins out determines whether you're going to end up in paradise uh, or whether you're going to end up in a place of punishment. At the top of the mountain for Islam, there is one God, but it is a different God than the God of Judaism or Christianity. Okay, and finally, briefly, let's take a, a look at those three questions of Christianity. Who is God? We believe there is one God, triune in nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is relationship from the very beginning. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the God, the Son of God, fully divine, fully human. And Jesus existed with God from the beginning, came from earth, born of a woman, performed many miracles, witnessed by many, and was crucified, willingly laid down his life to reverse the devastation of sin and brokenness that began in the garden. And he opened the doors for everyone to begin once again to flourish in relationship with God. Salvation in the afterlife, salvation is 100% reliant upon what Jesus did. There is nothing that you nor I could ever do to win our salvation. It is based 
on what Jesus did on the cross. And so the afterlife isn't uh, dependent upon what we do, but on whether we believe and receive what Jesus has offered in his grace and as the free gift of salvation. Even with this quick overview of three faiths only, we can begin to recognize that I don't think they do lead to the same destination. Having thousands of gods at the summit is very different than having one God at the top. And having a distant, even though one distant non-personal God at the top of that summit is very different than having a God who actually came down the mountain to meet humanity and restore us to relationship. Many religions share commonality. That's absolutely the truth. If we, uh, you might even want to think about it as a, an inverted mountain with the plain up here and the, and the summit down at the bottom because that's where we find commonality is kind of in the early stages of those paths. Most religions have a creation story. They all have some version of the golden rule. And of course, they try their best to explain humanity and divinity. So we have these commonalities, but the truth is as you go deeper up the path, they diverge more and more. They not only don't take us to the same mountaintop summit, they actually take us to uh, different mountain ranges. And Christianity is not the only religion that agrees with what I've just said. Hinduism Hindus do not accept that there is one God at the top of the summit. Islam does not agree that the afterlife has anything to do with Jesus Christ. So as much as some people would like to just believe in this big sense that all faiths lead to the same destination, all major religions would say no. They don't. So what do we do with that? If we come to that place, we see that in scripture. We understand that when we follow out the different paths that they do not lead to the same place. And we, we believe that scripture says there is one way to know God and that is through Jesus Christ. What do we do with that? Here's what I want us to hear this morning. We live in such a divided culture where everybody just seems uptight and angry about so many things, so quick to defend, so quick to get our, our hackles up. But I think one of the things we want to recognize is we can never coerce anyone into believing that Christ is the only way. But we can be grounded in the truth of why we believe that Jesus is the only way. And my friend, I hope that um, we will be able to share our faith with confidence, knowing that, wait a minute, this is not an arrogant, exclusive claim, but an inclusive and loving claim for all of humanity. And every person gets to choose what they are going to believe. John likes to say, we need to know that the gospel really is good 
and beautiful and true. That will give us way more confidence in sharing our faith with people that we love and care about. That we are the only religion, the only faith that has the story of a God who came down the mountain to restore us, to be with us, to be Emmanuel, to pull on skin and walk our life so that he knows exactly what we are experiencing. Amy read from the top of the service that beautiful passage in Hebrew about having a high priest. We can know God in such a personal way. But he's never been coercive and he's never been manipulative. He only offers life and freedom, and allows people to choose. Carrie Newhoff, pastor, blogger, podcaster, uh, wrote recently about the certitude or the certainty of beliefs. He says this, where Christians begin to veer into dangerous territory is when we overstate our certainty to the point where it becomes hard and closed and cruel. At our moments of greatest certainty, we have the propensity to be dismissive, rude, inhuman, and yes, even cruel. Some of Christianity's darkest moments in history reveal that to be true. And so does social media and emails even yet today. There are Christians who are absolutely certain that Jesus is the only way which is a tenet of our faith, but they look nothing like Jesus in the delivery of that certainty. So we got to pull back. We've got to look at the way Jesus communicated that truth and follow after him in that way. There are those in our culture walking away from the church, looking for answers that do not reek of arrogance, exclusion, and cruelty for the people that they care deepest about. My friend, we're never called to do battle over our faith. Peter, the brash and bold follower of Jesus, as he grew and mature in his faith, he wrote this towards the end of his life in 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. The Bible, which we say is the Christian's rule of faith, unfolds a story from Genesis through Revelation that is one of inclusion and love. And everyone is invited into this story. God does not force that belief on anyone And he never asks us to do so either. I think the table before us teaches us everything we need to know about sharing our faith. For on the night that Jesus met with his disciples in that upper room and he took the bread and the cup, before he did so, he tied a towel around his waist and acted in the the form of a servant. And he washed the feet of 12 men who, because of their own pride and arrogance with one another, refused to do so. And so Jesus washed their feet for them. And then they were in the heart-mind frame to receive what he was teaching. And he looked at them and he said, this is how you do it. 
this is how I'm going to ask you to love. This is how I ask you to serve. And the world is going to know that you are mine because of the love you have for one another. And then Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he tore it. And I, I can just feel the, the pulse in the room as he handed it to them and said, this is my body. This is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And then he took the cup and he said, and this is the blood, my blood poured out for the sins of many. Take and drink. May the way we share our faith be done so accordingly. As our worship team leads us, we invite you to take the elements and then stand in worship.